0: Good morning. Good morning to our viewers online as well. So, I love movies. Uh, Last night in my small group, uh, we were going around reciting quotes from favorite movies. I did an extended quote from one of my favorite movies, uh, So I Married an Axe Murderer. So, Mike Myers. Anybody like Mike Myers? Uh, Anyone here like to watch movies? My wife, Jackie, and I um, always liked watching movies. Um, For several years, we made it a point to um, watch the Oscars, and then we'd watch many of the the Oscar contenders. Um, I love the craft of movies, the cinematography, the set designs, the costumes, uh, the special effects, the character development, the acting. Um, As a matter of fact, I would say, That is probably my favorite aspect of movies, uh, is the acting. Um, Before I was in ministry, most of you who've been here uh, know this, I was an opera singer. And so in college and grad school, um, part of my training was studying acting, uh, particularly Stanislavski. So Konstantin Stanislavski uh, was a Russian who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, He was an actor himself, but he was most famous for developing a system of training actors uh, that was eventually imported into the US by Lee Strasberg, who then developed it into what we know today as method acting. Uh, You've probably heard of method acting. Uh, You're probably familiar with some of the most famous method actors. Um, A list of those will be up on the screen. Marlon Brando, De Niro, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, Hilary Swank, Adrian Brody, Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, Christian Bale, Heath Ledger, and Joaquin Phoenix. Um, method acting is typically associated with actors like becoming totally immersed in a role. Um, they often remain in character uh, even when they go off set. or or off screen, off stage, Um, it's an interesting phenomenon uh, to take on the persona, the emotions, uh, even uh, the memories, even if you have to make them up through like a detailed character study, uh, the memories of a role, like a character. Uh, And once we take these on, sometimes it can be hard to put them away. In some cases, an actor can get so into a role, particularly if they perform that role many times, um, that they take on certain aspects of the character that they're portraying. Acting, of course, has been around for a long time, and some of our ancestors used to be worried um, about acting for this very reason, right? They worried about what it does to a person's integrity. Um, What does it do to you When you climb into someone else's character, Um, is it safe to pass yourself off as someone else and to do it convincingly? Um, What if you get so immersed in a character that you begin to forget who you are? Um, In the shows that I did, uh, many of them, I played the villain. Ironic, isn't it? Uh, in a couple instances, I played the devil himself. Uh, so when you are playing an evil character, um, you have to be careful because that evil can rub off. Um, now, that was, that was before I committed my life to the Lord. I probably wouldn't want to portray the, <laughs> the devil now. Um, but what, what if you're playing not an evil character, but a virtuous character? Um, that can rub off, too. So, C.S. Lewis uh, used to say that one pathway to becoming a Christian is to pretend to be a Christian, to act like a Christian, uh, to, so to speak, dress up like Jesus. Um, The Apostle Paul in Galatians says uh, that we have to put on Christ like as if Jesus, we, we, could, we could pull Jesus over our heads like a costume. Many of us start out like this, like intentionally trying to act, trying to behave like a Christian before our heart catches up. That's actually quite common. Um, but here's an important question. Assuming that's what we're doing, Um, We're going around acting like a Christian. How do we know we're being sincere? And to what degree are we being sincere? Um, How do we know what our real motives are? How do we know we're not just acting? Um, How do we know we're not being a hypocrite? Do you know that the Protestant Reformation uh, came in part due to that very question? Uh, Martin Luther was a good Roman Catholic uh, Christian who did what good Roman Catholic Christians were expected to do. Um, When he sinned, he would go to confession. Um, It's called the Sacrament of Penance. And in the sacrament, the sinner uh, confesses his sins, hopefully out of a contrite heart. And then his priest um, absolves him of his sin, hopefully. And the whole process just troubled Luther. Like he began to question it. Um, How do I know that my confession of my sin is sincere? Like how do I know my heart is really contrite? Um, suppose I get on my knees before God to confess my sins. Um, I think I'm sorrowful because my sins grieve God. But what if, what if I'm deceiving myself? Um, what if the real reason I'm confessing my sins is not because it wounds others and grieves the heart of God, but if it's just to make myself feel better? Um, Luther worried about the possibility that he might be a hypocrite. And he should worry about it. We all should worry about it. Um, Because Jesus seems to really go after hypocrites. Um, In our scripture today, Jesus says, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. In Matthew uh, chapter 23, verses 25 and 26, uh, Jesus goes after the hypocrites again. He says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. And then again, in the next couple of verses, 27-28, he says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones. And all sorts of impurity. Outwardly you look right, you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Seven times Jesus says to the Pharisees in that chapter, What sorrow awaits you, hypocrites? Seven times Jesus pronounces a curse on people. Um, who aren't as good on the inside as they look on the outside. Um, Jesus, is, Jesus is addressing the kind of hypocrisy where people present themselves as godly when their hearts are not so godly. To be frank with you, people do this all the time. Um, in particular, this can be a temptation for pastors. People sometimes have a certain image of pastors. Uh, they expect them, of course, to be caring, to be good listeners, to be good at praying for people. Uh, they tend to expect them to be holy, reverent, pastoral. Um, maybe the pastor at one point struggled uh, with stuff in their, at one point in their past, but, but that better be B.C., Before Christ, right? Um, Life now for a pastor should be victorious, right? At least that's what people can assume. But what if it's not? Uh, What if our marriage is struggling? What if we are struggling with depression, anxiety, anger, pride, lust, There is a strong temptation to pretend, to be a hypocrite. Here's a little-known fact. Uh, It may blow your mind, um, but it is true. Sometimes pastors come to faith while they are in ministry. Something happens, uh, maybe a crisis, maybe like some other teachable moment, And the pastor turns to face God and be 100% honest for the first time in their life. Like all the religion, all the pretense has stripped away. And the only thing left is raw honesty and usually brokenness. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51.10. Of course, pastors aren't the only ones uh, who are tempted to to be something that we're not or to say something we don't mean. Uh, We all do it. Have you ever flattered somebody? I'm not talking about an honest compliment. I'm talking about uh, flattery which is manipulation, which is hypocrisy. Um, Have you ever said something to someone to elicit a particular response? Like fishing for sympathy or pity or for a compliment. Um, We know we're doing that when we get upset uh, when they don't respond the way we want them to. All of that is hypocrisy. So there's an interesting phenomenon. Um, If hypocrisy continues in a person's life, um, this disingenuous person eventually conditions themselves through sheer repetition, right? They've done this so many times um, that there comes a point uh, when the hypocrite becomes blind to their own falseness. They become what's called a sincere hypocrite. Jonathan Edwards, the the Puritan author and preacher, um, wrote about this kind of person, the sincere hypocrite. Um, This person is a hypocrite, meaning there's a disconnect between who they are inside and who they present to the world. And maybe at one time they saw the disconnect, but now they've done it so much that they've come to believe the lie. Um, That is the nature of corruption, you know. Like, sooner or later, we lose all sense of, like, identity and self, and we don't know who we are anymore. We can't tell when we're acting and when we're not. Our corruption has become too advanced. Like, through sheer habit and repetition, we've played a role that we think is who we are, uh, or at least who we want people to see, uh, and we, become, we eventually become blind to the whole thing. The memory of who we truly are has been buried under layers and layers of self-deception. An actor pretends, but a hypocrite deceives. And eventually, the person uh, one of the persons that the hypocrite deceives is himself. So I'll come back to hypocrisy in a minute. uh, But I want to talk about cleanliness for a bit. Cleanliness. Because Jesus addresses that as well uh, in this passage from Mark. So when we read the Old Testament, uh, particularly the book of Leviticus, uh, we discover that there are a lot of laws about uncleanliness. Um, Over and over we read about clean and unclean. Um, Clean in the Bible, obviously, uh, doesn't have to do with hygiene. It has to do with being purified so that we can approach God. Because God is completely holy, because he is without any defilement at all, um, he requires that his people approach him in purity. And so Leviticus spends a lot of time explaining what makes people clean and what makes people unclean. Um, The bottom line is that if you are unclean, uh, and there are many ways that we can become unclean, you have no access to God. If you're an ordinary person and you're unclean uh, for whatever reason, then you are temporarily cut off from the other people until you are made clean again. But if you're a priest, then it's even more serious. God says this to the priests. In Leviticus 22, verse 3, he says, In all future generations, if any of your descendants is ceremonially unclean when he approaches the sacred offerings that the people of Israel consecrate to the Lord, he must be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. When we read the Old Testament, we think at first that it's all about these arbitrary rules about what we can touch, what we can eat. Um, it's only later that we begin to realize that it's not really about all these rules and technicalities, right? If it were, none of us would be eating pork. You would not be eating lobster or crab, right? None of the clothes that you're wearing, what we any of us are wearing would be made of more than one material. And you definitely, definitely, definitely would not have a pastor with tattoos. So all of these rules point to something much deeper, our hearts. So when Isaiah encounters God, um, he is filled with fear and he cries out, it's in Isaiah 6, 5, he says, it's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies he knows that he's in no condition to stand in God's presence his life is in danger isaiah says again in isaiah 64 5 and 6 he says we are constant sinners who can people like or how can people like us be saved we're all infected and impure with sin when we display our righteous deeds they're nothing but filthy rags Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. So if we're really honest, like really honest, even us pastors can see that we have a problem. If we're really honest, we'll realize um, that there is something deeply wrong, deeply unclean about the state of our hearts. Rick Warren's wife, Kay Warren, uh, talked about the first time that she visited Rwanda. Um, She had heard about the genocide, the Rwandan genocide, uh, that resulted in people being tortured, raped, killed. Uh, Here's what she said. I naively assumed I would be able to look men and women in the eyes and tell if they had been involved. I was full of self-righteous judgment. Instead of finding leering, menacing creatures, I met men and women who looked and behaved a lot like me. There were no monsters in Rwanda, just people like you and me. Before that trip, I can't tell you the number of times I reacted to evil I read about or witnessed by saying, I would never do that. But thousands of years of bloody human history proved differently. Fifty-four years of my own history prove differently. We are all proficient in our ability to conceive, plan, and execute evil. You might as well face the shameful truth. You and I, put in the right situation, will do absolutely anything. Given the right circumstances, I am capable of any sin. I've grown more afraid of the monster lurking in the dark corners of my soul than of any monster lurking in the dark corners of my house. The Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, said the following. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. So this is our biggest problem. We are unclean. Now, the Old Testament uh, didn't require ordinary people to wash their hands before eating. Only the priests were required to wash their hands and only before they were offering a sacrifice. Exodus 30, 18 to 21, says, Make a bronze wash basin with a bronze stand, place it between the tabernacle and the altar, and fill it with water. Aaron and his sons will wash their hands and feet there. They must wash with water whenever they go into the tabernacle to appear before the Lord, and when they approach the altar, to burn up their special gifts to the Lord, or they will die. They must always wash their hands and feet or they will die. This is a permanent law for Aaron and his descendants to be observed from generation to generation, right? But we, we get to Mark 7, our scripture today, and we read in verses 3 and 4, it says, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So they had taken instructions meant for priestly washing at the moment of sacrifice, and applied it to all of their life in a way that God had never intended. This wasn't written in scripture, um, but these were some of the traditions that they developed. What had happened is that people had identified a legitimate problem. The problem is, we have unclean hearts. And they had devised a system of dealing with this problem. Man-made rules that, if kept, made them feel like they were no longer unclean. So can you think of any extra-biblical traditions or rules you've seen people live by that go beyond what scripture says? I'm sure you can. But hey, uh, it makes sense to add this man-made rule because uh, it seems moral. It seems righteous. But we see in this passage today what happens when we do that. There is a temptation to not only adopt these extra-biblical rules for ourselves, but to use them as a club to judge others. And in this passage from Mark today, we see the, uh, the Pharisees using their man-made rules as a way to club Jesus himself. When we sense the uncleanliness that's in our hearts, um, we often look to like, some other standard by which we can approve ourselves, and by which we can judge others. We think that if we meet certain standards and do certain religious things or refrain from doing certain things, then it's clear to all that we're in, we're clean, we're approved. Jesus had very harsh words uh, for this kind of behavior. There are two basic problems with this kind of behavior. One, um, Jesus says we end up undermining the very word of God. We start out with good intentions. Uh, We create man-made extra-biblical rules that seem right, they seem moral. But it isn't long before those rules uh, can, those rules we made can cause us to reject other God-given priorities, so in the passage today Jesus gives the example of somebody making a vow to dedicate some of their money to God and using that as an excuse to ignore the command to honor their father and mother Right? meaning the parents have some kind of financial need and the person says sorry I can't help you I already earmarked that money for God here are some other examples okay? just to kind of help us see this Uh, Maybe we're so careful about being moral and holy and separate from the world that we forget that Christ died even for the ungodly. That he calls us to leave the 99 and go after the one to seek and save the lost. Here's another one. Maybe we're so focused on Church stuff that we neglect our families or we neglect the people in our community. Here's another one. Maybe we're so concerned about proper doctrine, like the stuff in our statement of faith, right, any of those points, that we stop showing love and compassion to those who disagree with us. Religion always has us focus on the wrong things at the expense of what God wants us to be about. The other problem is this, uh, when we try to justify ourselves using man-made external rules, like we never really get to the heart of the issue, which is our heart. So to illustrate this, Jesus uses some pretty earthy language. if we eat a piece of unclean food, he says, it doesn't go into your heart, it goes into your mouth, goes down into your stomach, and then goes out into the sewer. Right? All the hand washing in the world, all these external man-made rules never get to the heart of the issue, which is that we have unclean, impure hearts. The problem is that at our core, at the center of who we really are, um, There is something seriously wrong. Jesus says in verses 21 to 23, For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So there's nothing we can do externally that will deal with the problem of our unclean heart. Jesus essentially rejects religion as a way of dealing with this. There's nothing we can do to scrub ourselves clean, no matter what we do. John Calvin said the following. He said, even saints cannot perform one work which, if judged on its own merits, is not deserving of condemnation. Hundreds of years earlier, God revealed that the day would come when he would deal with this problem. It says in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 29, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And you will live in Israel, the land I gave your ancestors long ago. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will cleanse you of your filthy behavior. I will give you good crops of grain, and I will send no more famines on the land. The day will come, God says, when he will save us from all of our uncleanness, because he will give us new hearts. One of the most beautiful pictures uh, of this is found in the passage of Zechariah 3. Zechariah sees a scene in heaven uh, in which Joshua, the high priest at the time, appears before God. So remember how much the priests had to go through in order to cleanse themselves. The high priest would only come before God once a year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, after a week of preparation, because you cannot appear before God in an unclean state. Zechariah sees Joshua appear before God. And Satan's there to accuse him. It says in Zechariah 3.3, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Now the word for filthy here in the original Hebrew is "soul." Um, So it's not just filthy, it's soiled as if excrementious, right? The implication in the original Hebrew is that his clothing is covered with excrement. It is a picture of how we must look to God as we come before him in all of our righteousness, even the best of us. He's there on the Day of Atonement. But he's in trouble because he's unclean. Um, There is no way he can stand before God, and Satan's there to accuse him. But before Satan can even speak, the angel says, take off his filthy clothes. And then the angel says to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. God strips away his uncleanliness and he gives him clothes that he couldn't provide for himself. He is reclothed in God's presence and he's even given a turban, which back then would have signified royalty. He comes before God covered with excrement and God strips away his uncleanliness and clothes him in righteousness. These laws of clean and unclean have found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Only Christ can cleanse the heart. So let me unpack that a little bit. So in 1563, in the city of Heidelberg, Germany, the Heidelberg Catechism was created. It was intended as a tool for teaching young people Uh, it was intended as a guide for preaching and it was a form of confessional that, that brought unity among the Protestant churches it is written in the form of questions and answers so the first question and answer are the following question what is your only comfort in life and death answer that I am not my own but belong body and soul Assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. The second question and answer are the following Question What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answered Three things First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. And so the Heidelberg confessional, uh, or, I'm sorry, Heidelberg catechism is right and ironic in that the first thing that each of us needs to know in order to live and die happily is how great our sins and miseries are. How can we praise Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior when we don't have an honest assessment of not just what sins we've committed in the past, but the sins that lie in our own heart today? Right? It's not, I used to sin, and now I know Jesus, and now my heart is fully sanctified. I don't believe that's possible this side of heaven. To reach a point where I no longer sin or have sinfulness in my heart. I need Jesus' forgiveness, his mercy, his grace every single day. How can we abide in Christ? How can we love Christ? How can we grow to become more like Christ? When we are ignoring the true condition of our heart, and half the time, we're just playing the role of a good Christian. Here is our problem. We are like Martin Luther. We don't know how honest our confession is. We don't know how contrite our hearts are. We don't know how real our enthusiasm is for Jesus. We don't know because we have a tremendous capacity for self deception. And so we need, all of us, every one of us, we need what Luther taught the whole church. We need God's grace. We need grace because every one of us, you, me, and everyone else in this world are such divided creatures. We may feel horrible about our condition, the state of our sin. And then we become aware of that very feeling, of feeling horrible. And then we start thinking, And somehow we're doing well because now we're aware of our sin. We may repent of our sins and humble ourselves before God. And then we discover we're quite proud of our humility. Uh, We may work really, really hard to regularly pray and serve and give. And then hope God is as impressed with us as we are. We may live a good moral life, right? We go to church, we give, we serve, we vote, we pay our taxes. We never really did anything like those people. And so we think we're somehow less in need of God's grace than them. But that's a sham. We are all in need of God's grace, every one of us. If we don't know the the condition of our own hearts, our motives, our desires and such, how can we know the condition of someone else's? And so, as Luther concluded, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One of the most profound reasons we need a savior is this simple fact we may be hypocrites and not even know it. What makes God's grace so amazing is that it doesn't just come for those people, but it comes for us hypocrites. When we realize that the seed of every evil that's in the world is in every human heart, yours and mine, when we realize that some sins are more visible and some are more hidden. When we realize that the felon, the addict, the elder, and the pastor, including myself, are all on equal footing before the cross. When we realize that we are all in need of Jesus, to remove our clothing that is soiled in excrement and to cover us with his righteousness, not just once but every single day, then no longer will religion get in the way of God. Such people live and breathe and smell of grace. Self-righteousness goes out the window. Religion goes out the window. And all that remains is a recognition of our equal footing before the cross. A humble adoration of Christ and a profound sense of gratitude for his love, for his grace, and for his mercy. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that every day your mercy abounds. And that you remove our filthy rags and clothe us in your righteousness. God, I pray that that prayer uh, from Psalm 139 for all of us. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. Point out anything in us that offends you. And lead us along the path of everlasting life. Lord, uh, I too want to lift up the people in the Ukraine this morning. Uh, We ask you, God, to rescue those who are vulnerable, bring your wisdom to the leaders and the politicians who are involved, and to bring about a peaceful resolution uh, to this whole situation. We pray especially for the Ukrainian churches, uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Protect them, Lord. Use them, God, to comfort, to minister to those in need, and to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, as, as Psalm 20, verse 7 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Our hope, God, is in you.